1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Arthur. I have some bad news for you. <laughs> this is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, to do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. To photograph his latest film, Joker, director Todd Phillips reteamed with cinematographer Lawrence Scheer, who described their latest collaboration as a character study during a recent interview at the Hollywood Reporter. This is Larry's sixth film with Phillips. The others include the Hangover series, Due Date, and War Dogs. Here we discussed a range of topics including Joker's cinematography, its story, the pre-release headlines, and how art is perceived by audiences. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Larry, thanks for joining us.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
1: So for starters, this is your sixth film with Todd Phillips. How did you meet and what is your collaborative process like?
0: We met as most jobs come in this business, which was a recommendation of a friend. I had done this movie with Steve Conrad, who's a writer director. He recommended me to Todd. I had always been a fan, mostly old school. And you know, I knew it about Todd. He's sort of, we run in similar circles. I was a fan of his filmmaking, but old school, I still regard as one of the funniest movies of all time. I wish I was a part of that one, but he was making this movie called and the I, hangover. And, yeah. Called the hangover. <laughs> exactly. On paper, not anything significant, frankly, like funny concept was really strong, but I wasn't there because of that script. I was there because Todd and I always wanted to sort of meet him and work with him. And thankfully we got on in the interview and, and he offered me the job and I think our personalities, we've both similar backgrounds. He's from New York, I'm from New Jersey. There was just like an energy there that we connected right away. And thankfully that movie went quite well. We enjoyed each other quite a lot. The movie had obviously great success and he's been you know, generous enough to continue to work with me ever since. So we've done all three Hangover movies, Due Date, War Dogs, and now Joker's our sixth film in 10 years
1: so this was obviously a different type of movie for the genre so what were some of the initial conversations that you had with todd about what he wanted it to look like and feel like
0: i think you know todd first and foremost is i think a filmmaker above all else and so a lot of the conversations are the same conversations that we've been progressing towards ever since hangover even including hangover which is we look at this material and and in this case it's like i would love to make A character study of one of the most notorious villains in comic book history. And I want to set it in basically New York, Gotham, you know, but like what we knew when we grew up in that time, late 70s, early 80s, New York, and make it feel like it could have been made in that era. So that was the initial discussion of like, it's going to be a character study. This is not a traditional comic book movie which then starts to take you into a place of like other character studies, which were some of those really, you know, breakthrough movies of that era in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, anthropologically, you start sort of watching and thinking about those movies, not only for their influences on the story and the tone, but also photographically as to what was it about those movies that made them different from the movies that preceded them and are different than the movies today so of course we you know we thought and talked about movies like you know the standard new york ones from that time taking a pelham one two three taxi driver of course straight time which is in la great la movie of that time dog day Afternoon, anything that kind of felt like it could represent uh what was the great movie where they throw the kid off the top of that building Fort apache the bronx you remember that movie I don't only really think we rewatched it, but it's like, to some extent, some of the influences on the movie and on the photography come more from our memories of those movies rather than the actual. Like, to often, when we would actually look at a movie, perhaps for reference specifically, let's say something like Network, we would almost always go, yeah, but this isn't really the look of the movie. We would take something away from it. Perhaps, if nothing else, we would take away from what it, we didn't want it to be. But we would reference some things nonetheless to kind of see how they jived with our memory of it and sometimes i think the movies are more of a reflection of our memory of those movies than they are the actual references of those movies mm-hmm. but of course it's like great character study movies midnight cowboy of those errors
1: right so you shot on location in new york and you considered shooting on film even didn't you
0: we were shooting film like the one thing todd and i sort of said separately to each other you know right when we first sort of read i first i first read the script that he wrote so i was like i feel like it shoots 185 aspect ratio which we hadn't done together most of our films are spherical 240 we've both individually shot anamorphic obviously cinematic wise i think you know we kind of tend to go towards that widescreen format but both of us were like yeah it feels like 185 which was great because we both were on that page and also we were like we should shoot 65 millimeter film. Like we should shoot large format film. We're like, yeah, let's do that. We went down that road a little bit. It proved a little untenable financially, mostly and other reasons. So then we were on 35 and we were there till like the last hour. And it was only then when we started still, because the look and feel of every movie is a discovery, not just in pre-production, but it's a discovery all through shooting, you know? And, I think as we were testing 35 and looking at it again, and we had shot five of our six films on 35, I had shot 20 films before that on 35. It wasn't like we weren't shooting film. It still was not quite jiving exactly with the feel of what we were looking for. You know, I had shot Godzilla on large format area Alexa 65. I told him a little bit about some of the attributes of it. And in spite of the fact that he didn't love digital, as much as he you know as other people do i respected that for sure he was certainly willing to look at it side by side against the 35 and when we started then testing that he opened up to the idea we also saw these like real technical attributes to it Mm -hmm. particularly with this film we knew some of this performance stuff with joaquin was going to be improvisational some of it was going to be most of it and it turned out all of it was never with a rehearsal so There are some attributes to digital that really matter. Not that that's gonna drive your decision wholly, but it does come into play. Technically focus, shooting super low light, super flexible, having the ability to sort of fire away at any time, and technically know that it was always gonna be near perfect because we couldn't wait till the next day to discover that this magical moment that Joaquin had was suddenly like super soft or something unusable potentially. So a combination of those things made us shoot digitally.
1: Right, so it was Alexa 65. Yeah, Alexa
0: 65.
1: And then the way you just described the way Joaquin was performing, how did that impact the way you lit and shoot?
0: Yeah, so, and this is not too dissimilar than Todd over the time of us working together, is we do very extensive prep. We talk through the script constantly. We talk specifically about, you know, sometimes very precise shots sometimes more emotional and bigger ideas that will guide us through that scene. Does this scene feel handheld, long lens, closer, wider, more intimate? Those kind of conversations. But I always know that with Todd, and we've done this to great effect, even going back to The Hangover, every day is up for discussion and everything we've discussed may get thrown out of the window. And it may get thrown out of the window four takes in when we discover it just doesn't feel right. So because of that, I've become very accustomed to just providing as much flexibility as possible. So I think my philosophy generally is a little bit more towards the line of lighting spaces, not faces. So I'll light a space, I'll make sure that the actors have a lot of flexibility, my assistants and other technical people, operator, you know, all those things, we all know there probably won't be a rehearsal, And let's just start to discover it as we shoot. So I kind of love it. Todd, I always would say, you know, filmmaking is not math, man. It's jazz. (laughs) And I've stolen that and said it a hundred times because I love it. And it really is. It's like, it's not science. It's not this thing that you can say one plus one equals two. It's jazz. And sometimes that jazz is truly jazz. Improvisation on the day, on the shot, with the actors, awesome. And sometimes it's just... The improvisation and the jazz aspect of seeing what happens on day one and letting that affect day two shooting and that and that and that and adjusting the movie as you sort of find it i remember even on hangover dan goldberg who at that time was todd's longtime producer said to me yeah the most important thing that we can do for todd and i can do for todd is give those first four weeks as much freedom rarely say no to anything For those first four weeks because in those first four weeks you're going to discover what the movie is i thought that is the most important thing i've ever learned which is in those first four weeks you know you're allowing the actors to discover their characters you're seeing the chemistry that bonds you're seeing what doesn't work right i've always loved that strategy and over time todd and i have just become more and more comfortable you know we any day I have a plan I've got a shot list I do all this sort of things just to get my head into the space of what the emotional aspect of like how the the scene should feel and look but I'm always willing to throw it all out and on this movie we throw it out a lot
1: right could you give us an example maybe a favorite scene yeah
0: or... I mean there were plenty this was fairly early on I think but there's a scene in a grimy bathroom at a very pivotal time in the story where It's really the crossroads in the inciting incident of Arthur starting a transformation into Joker. And he's been on a subway and he's been attacked. Not spoiler alert, but basically he does something on the subway and he's running from the scene. And he runs into a small bathroom. And in the script and leading into it and everything, even to that day, he's supposed to run in there, see himself in the mirror, kind of like digest what he just did and then hide this gun into like a little hole inside the bathroom and we're prepared to do that that's fine all that and Todd said "Nah, we're not going to do that we're not going to do even any of the script we're not going to do the four or five shots we thought this scene would take in fact here's what we're going to do Joaquin's going to walk in the space and get our A operator who's one of the best in the business Jeff Haley don't tell him what's going to happen and I didn't know what's going to happen but specifically let's not let the operator know anything and Thankfully, Todd had already produced a piece of music with the composer, and he basically just played that at full blast. And Joaquin walked into space with a camera handheld in the front door of this little tiny bathroom on stage and just saw what happened. And most of that continuous take is in the movie. And once we did it once or twice, we did like a tiny piece of coverage just with another angle or two. But effectively that was it and it was not anything like it was written and it also was part of that figuring out what this character is how joaquin's going to portray this character does it need to be said or spoken or traditionally photographed or can it be more expressive and in this case it's like this expressive almost metamorphosis dance that he's doing like you know like a i guess i don't know truly like i guess a butterfly shedding its cocoon it's like he's becoming something else and then we started sort of finding other opportunities to do that often very in lots of other places in the movie my mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face
1: she told me i had a purpose to bring laughter and joy to the world
0: Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there?
1: Would you also talk about your use of close-ups?
0: Yeah, so knowing that the movie was first and foremost a character study, and one of the reasons that I was really keen on shooting with this larger format was the way it allows you to shoot closer, really intimate proximity to the actors, which I think psychologically is subconscious, but it really matters to an audience. The audience senses... I think differently when you're shooting an actor from 20 feet away, psychologically, versus if you're three or four feet away or closer even still. But knowing that I didn't want those to be wide lenses, the benefit of like a larger format camera is you're now shooting really wide field of view, so you're actually being able to see Joaquin in his space. right? So he's not just on a long lens, isolated from his environment. He's in his space, but we're isolating him through depth of field. Because the larger lenses that you, the longer lenses you'll use for the same equivalent field of view that you would use on a smaller format. So, yeah, we were, we. it's a lot of close-ups in the movie. But when you have somebody performing at the level that he's performing, you want to be close. You want to see the nuance that's there, you know. Watching Joaquin work, I remember, because, you know, besides my partner every day, like, just leaving to go to the each day. She'd go, go make art today. Because, like, even though we knew we were making this, like, comic movie, you with know, like, a, a, a very f- renowned character that there were going to be a lot of people waiting to see what we did with this with this role, I mean, nobody wants to set out to make art in a self-conscious sort of way like that. But even when we're making The Hangover, frankly, we still look at this, like, beautiful combination of movies, which is part art, part commerce, right? So watching Joaquin work was as thrilling as any lighting setup i could ever do you know mm-hmm. todd would always say that's our special effect we don't have a guy flying around with like a you know a cape or things blowing up he's our special effect right that's our visual effect is Joaquin so let's just embrace that like that's as important as anything we could do with special effects and and he wasn't wrong because there were so many days in which I was just mesmerized by him and i was operating one of the cameras throughout the shoot and thankfully i was because it was it was exciting it was super exciting to watch him work
1: tell us about shooting the scene during which arthur goes to arkham to request some records
0: oh yeah 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 we were just we, we were talking a little bit about again under the guise of like the larger issue of the choker and arthur arthur's transformation into the joker And one of the scenes I was saying, and it was also one of those scenes that really made me just mesmerized by Joaquin. And his performance was a very specific scene in which he goes to get some records from Arkham, which is like the notorious state hospital mental institution. And it's middle of the movie and he needs to get some information, which will also be another key to him understanding a little bit more about his past and also continue to take him down a darker path and it's a mesmerizing scene because it's brian tyree henry who is like it's a five-page scene they're standing basically separated by this mesh of like a clerk's a, a records room you know metal mesh and we basically shot it simultaneously both sides of the coverage which is rare you know particularly if you have the time and money sometimes but in this case we really knew that both performances we're going to lay on each other's you know like so Joaquin's was going to drive the rhythm of Brian so let's do them at the same time because Joaquin is really driving the scene and and we're not going to be able to double it up and do his coverage separately and it was just one of those days and this is the thing I loved most about Joaquin is if he's not feeling it He ain't doing it. And he just kept walking off out of the camera. And we just kept rolling. He kept walking away and muttering to himself like, "Ah, I fucking hate this scene. This scene's not working. This sucks. I suck. All this stuff. He'd come back in. He'd try a little bit. He'd walk back out. And it's happened like seemingly for like 30 minutes of him just hating it. And and then you start to go like this could be. He's like, is it the scenes that's not working? Or is it something else? And then he sort of engages and gets in there. And then locks in, and I just remember, from the dailies to the first cut to every, I just like, this scene is remarkable. Joaquin is just mesmerizing, because he found some way into it that was both quiet but also confessional. It's interesting. like when you think about his transformation, in this scene, he's actually almost he's seeking to almost confess to somebody about what he's done. And he's reaching out. He's reaching out to another person almost to get himself caught in a way or to understand more about his future path that he's possibly thinking of going down. Because he says, like, well, how does somebody get in here, right? And we know he's already been institutionalized. It's, like, been established early in the movie. But it's such a cool moment because he's, like, wanting to know, almost like, I'm going to end up here potentially if i go down this like i'm i'm am i supposed to be in here and the way we shot it we shot him with this incredibly shallow depth of field joaquin you can't barely see the mesh and brian is behind just a different depth of field and a different focal length so he's he's sort of in the cage so it's like the guy who's the clerk who works there is caged joaquin's free But it's, you know, eventually it may, the tables may turn, you know, and so I love that scene for so many reasons. But when you actually go back and think about the movie, he's almost confessing and he's also looking at a potential future of where he's going to end up if he goes down the path that he's thinking about. So I love that scene for so many reasons. And Brian was so good. He was so good that I made a point to say, listen, man, you don't know me. You're only here for one day of acting, but... I've seen a lot of people act against Joaquin and you went toe to toe to him in a beautiful way. And so, yeah, it's it's really a favorite of mine.
1: Tell us a little bit about the creative intent for the scene where he's on the steps dancing.
0: Yeah, the steps were actually one of the most important locations of the movie, right? It's like, where is Arthur's world? And so we, along with Mark Friedberg, who was the most instrumental in that sort of early location days, because he went out and really scouted, what are some of the places that Arthur would live with his mom? And there was like an old tenement in Brooklyn that we nearly went with, that was more of like a low level, had a really cool center, shared common space in the center. And it was really actually quite visual and beautiful. It was like these three buildings. And we were very close to going with that location but todd was mesmerized and always interested in this like idea that the character constantly had to sort of like traverse up like he had to climb up this like massive set of stairs like those stairs we had to work on those stairs and there were people that had 30 40,000 steps on their like fitbit those days <laughs> Because literally, it was 190 steps. If you walked from the bottom to the top, you were exhausted. And we had to work on those every... And so it's like, but there are people because we never closed the stairs down. That was how they got home. And they looked exhausted. every. And you go, right. these are not people with taxis and limos and their own car. They're traversing these stairs every day. And that's Arthur's thing. So those stairs are as important a character as anything in the movie. And I think... The idea that that opening shot after he gets off the bus and the camera just pans slowly with him at dusk as he just like stares up those stairs and it reveals the stairs and he just starts this slow walk up. And then the next time we see, we see him doing it again. The idea that as he transforms and sort of discovers, albeit a villainous self, but his true self, going down the stairs it's not just down the stairs but dancing down the stairs it's a sense of celebration he's finally found his true self so like it's like he had to walk and slug his way up these stairs well at the end of the movie yeah he's gonna dance and there was always like whether it's like there's a scene where they go see a chaplain movie being played at this charity event for thomas wayne there was always a little sense of whimsy to the character of arthur and even joker that involved this almost Chaplin type dancing element. So I think it was like a combination of like some elements of what Chaplin did in. Which movie is it? I'm going to, anyway, it'll, it'll come back to me. But it's a social commentary movie because Chaplin would do that. He'd right. make these comedies that were also reflections of society. And so I think there's part of that in this character as well. And finally, in a world where everyone thinks they can do my job, check out this guy. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal.
1: What was the challenge to the photography, or how did you approach it knowing that your protagonist is not the hero?
0: That's a really good question. I mean, I don't think I approached it necessarily any differently because of that. I think that's more a fundamental question about just the story right is like that's something that i don't think consciously i tried to do anything differently regarding that from a photographic standpoint but it was certainly something that we talked about all the time right it's like suddenly i mean i think to answer the question shortly is first and foremost we were studying a human being right we weren't looking at him as a villain he becomes a notorious villain a notorious infamous comic book villain. And it sort of, it certainly makes the transformation into what he will later become, which is the Joker we all know and and have sort of seen in other movies and in the comic books and all that. But for us, we're, we're following a human being. And so I think first and foremost, it was like, let's show this human being for what he is. He's a man trying to get through the world. And so certainly the first act when he's Arthur, we tried as best we could to sort of you know, just show him in his space in as human a way as possible. So we weren't trying to do anything to avert in that regard, but certainly, you know, there's some very subtle things. Todd, you know, at one point, just a passing conversation he talked about, you know, we have our shadows, right? And our shadows sort of follow us around. And then we see them on the ground, we see them wherever they're reflected, and we think that the shadow is that part of ourselves. And he's like, this movie, in some regard, is... Arthur discovering that his shadow is his true self. Like that darkness that is following him around is actually his true self. And I was always, that, I, he said it in passing, but I, I remember writing Todd this like email going, that idea is such a cool idea. And it was like, because sometimes you create cerebral ideas that found, I didn't go to film school, I was an economics major, but you sometimes have to create like cerebral ideas to help guide you in your decisions throughout the movie. And you hope that those cerebral ideas stay in a very subtle way. Otherwise, it's going to feel self-conscious and film schooly, And you're never looking to do that. But you want some of those things to sort of find their way in the movie. So along those lines, I made a little map of just the type of lighting that would be on Arthur early in the movie versus later with Joker, which is to embrace the idea that his darker self is suddenly becoming him. So those early scenes, I tried to put a little bit more of him in front light. If he was near a light and we were photographing him, I'd try to stay on that shadow side. Or that lit side, not the shadow side. And later sort of transition into half light until suddenly there's like specific shots where I tried to keep him more in the shadow. And in fact, that same scene when he runs into the bathroom, if you remember the shot that follows right after he basically commits these acts and runs away he runs into a tunnel like an overhead he's running under the i think it's the williamsburg bridge and his shadow is the first thing you see and so that is like again it's going to sound really cerebral but it was like it's like his shadow is now leading him it's the his shadow is now leading. normally shadow follows you this shadow is now leading him to this new person to this new transformation so little things like that you know we're trying to do
1: I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about the attention on the violence in the film. Did you expect the reaction?
0: I mean, I think the reaction is not surprising in, it's funny, like I said before, I didn't go to film school, but I studied a little bit of film theory in college. And my favorite class, right, was because I was an economics major, was a class that studied, it was basically like a sociology professor who studied film. And his thing was every film is a product of its time, right? So every film is infused with elements of its time in which it was made as well as, let's say, the setting, like the time you're portraying in the movies. So, I mean, we even looked at like how Three Amigos reflects like, I don't even remember, Iron Contra or something like that. It was like something you can assess. Now, some of that's just like reassessing things for that. But there's no question that we could see a version where you go you're telling the story of a villain and you're humanizing him that creates conflict for the audience i know the first time i saw it cut all the way through having been a part of it i felt great conflict myself because i'm like here we are humanizing and telling the story beautifully i I, mind you in the sense of we're all humans and we should all deserve to be looked at as humans and arthur's no different And he does bad things and so in those times when he does bad things you're conflicted there's no question that i could see a world in which people would say like what you know again bring up the issue of violence in movies i think it's misguided in so much as i think 90 percent of those people or maybe more haven't seen the movie yet and i don't think the movie deals with its violence irresponsibly or cavalierly in the slightest in fact it's not indiscriminate violence right and there are lots there's violence in movies and i don't think movies should be censored i don't think i don't like first person shooter game video games but i wouldn't ask anyone to censor it or take it away you know i don't believe in that i think films that portray troubling things i think are thought provoking in ways that we can have the conversation i'd rather people go see the movie sit down afterwards and talk about some of the issues that are in the movie and if you watch the movie, you'll see not only is the violence not gratuitous and it's not—it's certainly not fetishizing violence. It doesn't fetishize guns at all. you know. In fact, he's given a gun in the movie. And the words that he says is, I'm not supposed to have a gun. And we've established he's been mentally institutionalized. And when this character gives him a weapon, he says, I'm not supposed to have this. And so I actually think the movie hopefully will provoke the conversations that we should be having which are the real issues that are causing some of this horrible stuff and i have great sympathy towards people that have had to live through this violence firsthand mass i from a personal standpoint have a very clear sense of what needs to be done and i can tell you it's not art and music and movies and those things that are going to stop the massive gun violence that exists more in america than in any country in the world so i think I'm not surprised by it. I'm a little disheartened because I think it's a distraction to the real issues. And I also think if people see the movie, I don't think they'll agree that it certainly is an irresponsible, violent movie. There are plenty of... I grew up in the 90s, and I'm not prudish prudish by any way, but I just remember psychologically feeling odd in these movies that don't exist as much anymore. But man, these like Schwarzenegger movies or... Great, fun movies, fun, like, popcorn movies would take out, like, you know, AK-47s and just indiscriminately kill civilian people, not extras, background people, not characters in the movie that we know and, you know, have a place or have had, like, some relationship to the people. They're just, like, background people being indiscriminately killed. And even then, I would go, that's so odd. Why are we okay? Like, that is indiscriminate violence in movies that I feel like is troubling doesn't need to be censored, but nonetheless, I would be sort of troubled by that. This is not that movie. What
1: it are really the discussions isn't. that you hope people will take from it or begin how to do have? We
0: lose, how do we lose our people in society, right? How do we lose our people? It's interesting, this movie, by no means, we never talked about this, but I was thinking about this. I was thinking, people always mention Taxi Driver and I hadn't seen Taxi Driver in 10 years. I think they think we were like, we're like studying it on set every day. I literally hadn't seen the movie in 10 years and I went and did a a screening of it with Michael Chapman, the DP, and we talked about the film. And again, thinking about that sociology class about like, okay, it took place in 1976, right after the Vietnam War. He was a man who was honorably discharged from the Marines, right? He wasn't some weirdo. He was just trying to get a job who couldn't sleep at night, right? And he was sort of pushed to the fringes of society. They don't discuss it, but like, what was it? Well, our movie takes place in 1981. And although this was never discussed, and it was just more of me thinking about it. Well, Ronald Reagan's eight years, one of the problematic things that he did was he defunded mental health you know, funding. He took out so many mental health facilities. Well, this is a character who's mentally ill. Admittedly, he says it in the third scene of the movie. It's talked about throughout the movie. You know and he's given a weapon by somebody else and it's like here you go you take two people you give a mentally ill person access to a weapon and you know I think those are some issues I would talk about if I was watching this movie but the part that I think is just it, it's not unfair because that's a too strong word it's just like you sit there and you go ah oh, come on guys why don't we sit down afterwards go grab some dinner and talk about the movie But let's not have this conversation before anyone has even had a chance to see it because I truly believe we were never cavalier about the violence. And I don't think it's that kind of movie. And I think it's unfairly pegged with some idea that we're just creating something irresponsible. And that I don't believe the movie is by any stretch.
1: And it was being made. Was that something on people's mind? Were they thinking about the potential Uh, for this topic to come up?
0: I think we talked a bit about the fact that, like, of course, you you know you're making a movie about ultimately somebody who does bad things, right? It's just like, you know, Thanos does terrible things. Now, maybe it's packaged slightly differently. We were making something that was grounded in much more of a reality-based thing because it's it's sort of like a, the world in which we wanted it to take place. And frankly, I wanted the movie, and we wanted the movie to feel a bit more real, you know? It's like, even though, you know, Taxi Driver, like I said, we were watching a lot, the movie is a masterpiece watched under today's lens it's a scary movie you know it fetishizes guns more than i ever remembered you know i hate guns i won't ever own one i barely will ever touch one even if it was all prop on a movie i don't touch it and like that scene when travis bickle buys a gun it's like i wanted to buy a gun it's so powerful in that movie we don't do that in this movie so like i don't think we ever like even though some of the discussions were out there i don't think we ever were thinking we're doing anything irresponsibly because again he's not indiscriminately taking out a huge automatic rifle and mowing down people and so you know i think the way in which we dealt with it actually is you know it's thoughtful and thought-provoking because again we're taking a powerless character and making him feel power over his own self in spite of the fact that he's committing a heinous act or two, you know? And so it's why, frankly, I like movies to be, I like, I like thought-provoking movies and we can't sanitize everything we see or read or listen to. So, you know, I'd rather this movie exists, frankly, than not, particularly as a filmmaker, but also, you know, as a, as a thought-provoking piece. Is something funny stay down freak <laughs>
1: something we had been talking about earlier was just the responsibility of art
0: yeah exactly and like in the context of this movie or any movie for that matter is it's an interesting question right because This business, movie business, movie making, right? it's like, I can't remember who said it precisely, but it was like, in some regards, the theater is like a church, right? and it can actually show us things, and it has power. There's no question about it. It has great power, and it can inspire us, and it can show us great hope, and it can show us great humanity, but it also can show us the darkest sides of ourselves. And I genuinely believe both things have value. You know we all are susceptible to great moments of desperation and loneliness and rage we all have that in us just like we all have in us love and hope and and all those other things and so sometimes you want to embrace those movies that just show you a little piece of that dark side right and i don't believe showing you a little piece of that dark side takes you to the dark side i think sometimes it allows you just to not feel so alone just in the same way as everybody just wants to see reflections of themselves in movies and so this responsibility of filmmakers it does it's not their responsibility to always give you a happy ending it's not their responsibility to always have the good guys win unfortunately and you know we can look at our own world right now and sometimes the good guys don't win and sometimes the bad guys win and you know can filmmakers make adjustments To be more responsible? Sure. I remember Alan Horn, and I had great respect for him. I think at one point, I don't know if he was still at Warner's or if he brought this over to Disney at the time, but I think he said, like, well, let's not glorify smoking anymore because smoking kills and causes lung cancer, and no doubt. Well, you know what? Having that policy in place, that's okay. Now, having that policy in place and going to make Mad Men or going to make a movie that takes place in the 70s in which the character smokes a lot and saying you can't do that, that's a bad use of that policy. I think the policy should be one in which indiscriminately showing people smoking when they don't have to, either out of like the story point or something like more creative, like it's a period piece or something. If you could get a filmmaker who's on the fence between making their character smoke or not, and they decide, yeah, you know what, let me just not have them smoke, sure, why not? That helps. That's a good thing. And if you can get people to say, like, listen, indiscriminately gunning people down with no regard to the individuals that were killed in those scenes, like the 90s action movies, stop doing that. And if you get enough filmmakers to just pause and think about that, then yes, of course, it doesn't hurt. But I think either ad hoc censoring stuff or stopping all of that from existing in hopes that that's going to stop the greater problem, it's folly. And I don't think i think that's a distraction to the greater conversation you know it's a business in which we're trying to also create you know something artistic or something thought-provoking or something beautiful all those things but it's both parts business and you know commerce and art and the commerce has a great way of also creating sort of a a little bit of censorship right partly it's also it's also a very democratic thing movies more than anything else right you decide you decide to take your money and buy a ticket it's not on free tv it's not just there for you you know it's like you're making a decision to buy this thing and i think the audience gets to decide you know if they want to engage in a movie and i think like i said when i think of joker and i think of its place in that conversation i actually think it's more thought provoking in ways that will lead the discussion in a positive direction than it is the other i genuinely do and it also on the sort of commerce slash art side it's also by definition telling the story of a villain right just like if we were telling the story of the devil he's going to do some bad things and so, you know, it's powerful, right? The Joker is a powerful force. He's charismatic and he's exciting and all these things. And I think that's what makes it thought provoking: is that you're following somebody who does bad things. But I think people should go see it and go to dinner afterwards and talk about it for an hour or so, and go see it again maybe, and maybe have a different perspective.
1: We're also seeing a proliferation of superhero movies today. What do you think that says about where we are?
0: Oh yeah, like again, ever since. I took that theoretical class in school that dealt with sociology and movies. I can't help but always think of trends in movies and try to reflect on what they're saying about where we are in our world right now. And I sure as hell would have thought this like sort of proliferation of superhero movies would have been much shorter lived than it has. And interestingly enough, if you're looking at it, and again, this may be theorizing, but Iron Man came out right almost exactly at the time of the GFC, right? And I think we live in a world now in which unfortunately we're seeing bad people, people that are taking advantage of this massive income inequality, all these things that are taking, there's there's like a, a sense of real disparity and hopelessness and desperation, particularly in light of that. And we're not seeing enough justice. We're not seeing people put in jail. We're not seeing people being taken to task. We don't see a sense of responsibility. So I feel like, wow, that was Iron Man 1. And now we've spent 10 years still not seeing justice. So we've literally embraced superheroes, capes, flying around to deliver us justice that we're not getting in the real world. But I would say in light of that, sometimes the bad guys win too. And so Joker probably has its same place in that, what is this reflecting of our time? And I think we live in a time where we're watching some bad people win. And so maybe this is reflecting that, you know, I don't think these are subconscious things. I think they happen over time when you sort of analyze the types of movies that come out. So every time it's funny, cause you'll see trends like that year by year in movies, right? You'll see movies that come out about one person trying to survive against great odds by themselves, right? Like that Robert Redford movie at sea you know, the same year as gravity is the same year as, You know whatever it's like so you see trends like that all the time and i'm always interested in seeing how those trends play over time and this this superhero trend is a long time of which we are desperate to have justice we're desperate to have somebody be able to beat villains that are so great that normal human beings can't beat them right and unfortunately i feel like perhaps we as just regular people feel powerless against some of these forces that we're up against if the tide turns, maybe Marvel's reign is over. <laughs>
1: well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. We really appreciate you joining us today.
0: Thanks, guys, for having me. But
1: where are the clowns? Send in the clowns. Well, maybe next year. plus.